The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're going to be in the book of Esther uh, for my teaching the next three weeks. And uh, this is an interesting Father's Day message. Maybe not your normal Father's Day messages. Uh, uh, But this is perhaps one of the most important things you need to hear and I need to hear this morning. Um, Not only as fathers, I mean particularly as fathers, but also as men and women in the body of Christ living in a fallen world, living in a country where there's in so many ways great prosperity, but also in so many ways great idolatry. And the question that arises from the book of Esther is the question, where is God? Where is God? In fact, God's name isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. And it's led some people, even uh, uh, Martin Luther, for example, in the Reformation, didn't think it ought to be part of the Bible because God wasn't mentioned. I think he's wrong. He's right now. He knows. God corrected him. But we're going to look at this book of Esther, and this is a, a very famous story And the reason why I think it's so important to hear this on a Father's Day is because this question of where is God is not only in the suffering, that's going to happen in the book, uh, this potential genocide of the Jewish people, but the question of where is God is even in the successes, in the good. How many times in our day, in our week, do we go along and we don't even think about God? We think about getting the next thing done. We get, think about advancing in our career. We think about advancing in our education. We think about raising our family and taking care of the details of life. And God doesn't even come into the picture. And that's what we see in the book of Esther. And so for some of you fathers, you're, you're, things are going well and life is good and your kids are obedient and they're happy and they're well fed and they have more possessions than they would ever need. But it's easy to forget God, for God not to be in the picture. And and some of you have kids who are not doing well, perhaps battling sickness, or perhaps they're rebellious, perhaps there's an alienation and estrangement in the family. And it's very easy to ask the question, whereas God, perhaps you've not been able to have children, and you want to desperately, and you're tempted to think, where is God? See, that question is not only for fathers, is it? That's a question all of us have asked at one time or another. Where is God? Well, I think there's three major areas of application in this book of Esther, and I just want to put them out at the beginning before I start. First, I think this area of application is finding comfort in God's providence. Turn over to Acts 2. I know I probably had you were turning to the book of Esther, but keep your finger there. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, and I want you to see this in verses 22 to 24, a classic passage on the sovereignty of God over evil schemes. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he tells his audience, men of Israel, hear these words. Listen up. Pay attention. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus went to the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet he says, this Jesus you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's preaching the gospel and he says, listen, the time in which the greatest, that question, where is God, ought to be asked at the cross when the Son of God, who is perfect, who is attested with miracles and powers and signs and wonders, who never sinned, who never deserved anything he received, and he was nailed to the cross as a curse by the hands of lawless men, and he was killed. And you might be tempted to ask, where is God in that? Peter says, oh, by the way, he was crucified according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. He was right there in control of that circumstance. And guess what? Because he's in control of that circumstance, we preach good news, not bad news. We don't preach a dead Savior. We preach a risen Savior. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so we preach good news because God is on his throne. And this should bring you great comfort because he's in control. If he's in control of the worst crime in human history, he's in control of your life. And he's on his throne and everything that's happened to us comes through his hand first. And he always uses it, always for his glory and for our good, even if we don't see it immediately. And that's what the book of Esther teaches us. God's comfort in his sovereign providence. You see, the sovereignty of God should not be something you chafe under. I don't want you to hate the sovereignty of God. I want you to love the sovereignty of God. He's in control and he's all powerful and he's all good. And so everything he does is for a purpose. And so you can trust him. That he has a greater good purpose that brings him glory and you joy in your suffering and in evil than you can understand from your perspective. And he has a sufficient, glorious reason for everything that he allows. And that should bring us great comfort when we ask this question, where is God? Also in this passage, we see that it's not only God's sovereignty, we see the challenge of human responsibility. Right here in this passage, it's not that because we believe God is sovereign that we're fatalists and we just say, well, Fate has decreed everything. We're just along for the ride and there's nothing we can do. No, he says right here, Peter preaches, you crucified him. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. They're responsible for the death of Christ. Back in Genesis 50, we won't turn there, but you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? What you determine for evil, God determined for good. We see it in Philippians 2 regarding 
the cross work of Christ as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, this is right after he said, God has raised him up, given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because of the cross, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the challenge of human responsibility, isn't it? We're responsible to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty hand in hand. You remember what Charles Spurgeon said about it? It's like two railroad tracks. They never cross, they never meet, they never reconcile, but both train tracks are needed to get the train from one end to the other. That's how this is. It seems like a contradiction. It seems like a, 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 um, something that is not reconcilable to our minds, but yet Scripture says it over and over and over. And the book of Esther shows us this, this challenge of human responsibility. Mordecai tells Esther, you've been raised up for such a time as this. And so therefore, Esther, you need to be brave and strong and courageous and go into that king even though he hasn't asked for you to come in and it might cause you to be exiled or to die, but you've been raised up for such a time as this. Thirdly, Esther teaches us God's protection of his children. God's protection of his children. Turn over to Jude 24 and 25. I know I haven't even got to the book of Esther yet. This is all just by way of introduction. But Jude is right before Revelation. And Jude, when he prays for the church, he says this wonderful comfort about God's protection for his children. He says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. This is in Jude 24 and 25. To him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What a wonderful thought. The Father is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his presence, not with fear and trembling, but with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God's protection of his children. So let's turn back to the book of Esther. I just want to begin by reading the first uh, paragraph down to verse 9. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, And the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains 
and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all of his staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Well, here in the introduction, in the first two verses, we get the background. We get the setting of this story of Esther, and it's in the court of King Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is the Hebraized form of King Xerxes. If you remember your Greek studies, King Xerxes was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he ruled from an area from modern-day western Pakistan all the way down south of Egypt into modern-day Sudan. He was, it was one of the great kingdoms of the world. And the reason why we have a Hasuerus in our Bible is that's just a literal uh, sounding out of the Hebrew word that they use to Hebraize the Persian name of Xerxes. What's amusing about this, according to uh, a man who's done a study of humor in the Bible, is he says the way the name is spelled, Ahasuerus, it would have sounded something like King Headache to its Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking audience. And there's a lot of these in the book of Esther. And this king was a headache. And you're going to see it in this story. But, but just to give you a little bit of background, if, uh, because I love history, I guess. You remember the Jewish people, they rebelled against God. And so God sent them into captivity. First under Assyria, the northern kingdoms were sent into captivity under Assyria. And then the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, was sent into captivity under Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and took the Jewish people into captivity The people you remember the most probably are Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, he, this is in 605 BC that Judah's taken into captivity. And eventually the Persian kingdom conquers the Babylonian kingdom. You remember on the wall, the handwriting on the wall? Mene Mene Tekel Ufarshim that's in uh, the story of Belteshazzar, descendant of Nebuchadnezzar who's having a party. And Cyrus, King Cyrus, whose mother was a Medo from the Medo Empire and his father was from the Persian Empire, which is why it's called the Medo-Persian Empire. He conquers Babylon in 538 BC. He rerouted the water, caused a lake to fill, caused the level of the river in Babylon to go down. So they came in under the the river gate and they took over the city in a night and conquered the Babylonian empire. And in 536, two years after he conquers Babylon, he issues a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But it's not until 80 almost 80 years later in 458 BC that Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and then in 445 BC that Nehemiah arrives. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah left the Persian Empire, left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem under the reign of Xerxes' son, 
Artaxerxes. But Cyrus, he reigns for eight years. Uh, I'm sorry, Cyrus, after he dies, his son Cambyses reigns for eight years and he was a tyrant, so there was a coup. He was knocked out of power. Another guy reigns for eight months. And then King Darius kills the pretender to the throne, takes over the throne in 521 BC. And Darius, he's known for having a dream and Daniel interpreting the dream after he's been thrown into the Daniel in the lion's den, right? And all of the the story there. But Darius, what he's known for in history is he tries to attack the Greeks. And he goes to a city called Marathon in 490 BC. And he tries to attack the Greeks. And of course, the Greeks beat Darius back into the water. And a runner runs from Marathon over to Athens to let him know they won in that 26.2 miles is a marathon, I think. That's where we get the modern length of a marathon. Evidently, the story goes, after he said they won, he died, the marathon runner. Philippides, or I can't remember his name exactly, but the reason why I bring this up is because now, after Darius is defeated, his son, Xerxes, takes over, and they have a grudge against Greece. And it goes into this story because Xerxes begins his reign in 486 B.C., Four years after his dad had been whooped at Marathon, he takes over ruling. And he has a plan that he's going to go back into Greece. And he's going to conquer Greece. And so this party, this feast that's going on at the beginning of Esther, is a feast with his nobles and his generals and his governors to set forth the battle plan to take over Greece. And... Uh, So Xerxes has this feast to show his wealth and his power to gain the support of his nobles and his governors to avenge the defeat at Marathon, to plan the assault. And according to the Greek historian um, Herodotus, who wrote a, a history of this 20 years after it happened, there was a campaign. He said there were 2 million men and 1,200 ships that Xerxes brought to take over Greece. Might be an exaggerated number. I've seen conservative estimates of 200,000 men and hundreds of ships. Either way, you all know that in 480 BC, he landed at Thermopylae, and it was the Battle of the 300, the Spartans who held off the Persian army and King Xerxes for however many days it was. Well, he gets whooped at Thermopylae at 480. He gets whooped at Salamis in 480 by the Greeks, and his naval naval fleet is wiped out. And he gets whooped at Plataea in 479 BC, and he runs home with his tail between his legs, and he's done trying to attack Greece. Now, that's the story of Xerxes. He ends up failing in that attempt. And he has this feast in order to prepare for these assaults, And at the end of the feast, he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, one of his many hundreds of wives, but his queen, the the wife who was the most to him. And Vashti is probably a title that means beautiful. And he wants her to appear before all of his princes and governors. Now, she was not invited as a guest. She had her own feast. She was summoned as an object of lust. He wanted to show her off to all these men. And they were drunk And she knew she was going to be humiliated by being leered at by a crowd of drunken men, so she refuses him. Now, this embarrasses Xerxes. And um, look at verse 10. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown in order to show the peoples and the prince her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this time, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all those who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say... King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persian media who've heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. There will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repeated that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. And this is a great tragedy. She didn't come, and it was going to wreck the kingdom. Every household was going to be messed up and wives weren't going to listen to their husbands anymore. Well, he's filled with rage. He's embarrassed. And scripture pictures Xerxes as a weak man. Chapter 3, he's manipulated by others. Here in this chapter, he's proud and self-indulgent, given to fits of temper and rash decisions that he later regrets. He's King Headache, all right. In fact, Herodotus records a story. We don't know if it's true, but Xerxes, evidently, he was frustrated when a storm destroyed a bridge he was building across the Hellespont. And so he ordered the water itself to be flogged with lashes and chains thrown into the water, and he ordered the water to be branded with a hot iron. And this was what, he was to, what they were to say when they did it. Bitter water, our master thus punishes you because you did him wrong. Though he had done you none, Xerxes the king will pass over you whether you want it or not. In accordance with justice, no one offers you sacrifice, for you are a turbid and briny river. Uh, this guy was hungry with power, and he didn't like people to tell him no. But he was pictured as a, a weak man, and this is the man Esther must marry in this story. Poor Esther, my goodness. So he consults his advisors, his lawyers. There's no law in the books dealing with Queen Vashti saying no to him. He believes it sets a dangerous precedent. They counsel him to banish her from his presence and replace her. And because he's humiliated, he says, hey, this sounds good to me. And what's ironic about it is this decree makes him look like an even bigger fool. Because he goes ahead and tells the whole country. 
what happened. And it reminds me of Psalm 2-4 where God laughs at the pretensions of earthly kings. In fact, uh, Psalm 37 also speaks of God's laughter. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. <laughs> Psalm 59.8, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at the nations. Here we see this picture of a weak king who's ruled by his rage and his emotions. And what's ironic about this, and, and I guess where the question comes in, where is God, is that in chapter 2, we're going to see Esther's going to marry this man. She's chosen as queen, and we're tempted to ask, where is God in this situation? Where's God? After all, Israel is under punishment because they refused to worship God and they worshiped idols and they'd been conquered and taken into Babylonian captivity and now they're under Medo-Persian rule. And it seems like they're just setting themselves right into the culture. A Jewish woman, Esther, marries a Persian king contrary to the law and Mordecai tells her to hide her Jewish identity Basically tells her to lie. And and it it brings up this question of, where is God? It's far different than Daniel who refused to eat the meat that Nebuchadnezzar wanted him to eat because it was offered to idols. Or Daniel who stood his ground. Or Daniel who prayed with his window open. Or Daniel who was thrown in the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Seems like, where is God in this picture? It's just... Jewish people living in a pagan culture, rising to the top. Well, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint... Officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women and let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti and this pleased the king and he did so. So the king holds a beauty contest to replace Vashti. He says, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Bring all the the young virgins of all the most beautiful women who are young virgins in the country. Bring them, make them part of my harem, make them part of my my concubines and my wives, and I'll pick one of them to replace Vashti. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with 
her, the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So it's ironic that Mordecai, his name comes from the same root as, their, as the Babylonian god Marduk, and Esther's name comes from the same root as the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And here they are in Susa, Shushan, which is a city just north of Babylon, one of the capitals of the Medo-Persian Empire. And they're named after these Babylonian gods, but it's really the unnamed god of Israel, Yahweh, who's going to have the final victory at the end. Like Daniel before her, Esther, in the providence of God, receives the favor of a supervisor in verse 9. She then receives the favor of everyone who saw her in verse 15. And ultimately, we're going to see she receives the favor of Xerxes in verse 17. You see, very often we don't see God's providence and his presence in our lives until we look back. We look back at the events and we say, wow, only God could have orchestrated that. He must have been with me all along through that. Have you ever had that happen? Where you, you didn't even know how you were going to take care of things or, or, or solve a problem. And through a series of circumstances out of your control, you end up finding yourself not only at a solution, but at a solution that ends up being far greater than you could ever imagine. And all you can do is say, God was with me all of the way. His presence was with me. And we begin to see this here in Esther chapter 2. And in verse 10, we don't know why Mordecai didn't want her to reveal her Jewish heritage. Um, Xerxes wouldn't have had a problem with it. He didn't have a problem marrying wives of any of the nationalities under his kingdom. Perhaps, as later events show, there was anti-Jewish sentiment in Susa. And so he just wanted her to keep her Jewish identity secret so she wouldn't be killed or beaten or her beauty marred. Regardless, it's impossible to use Esther's behavior as a role model. I just don't think we can. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, she writes this, and I think this is really perceptive. How would you use this episode from Esther's life to teach virtue to your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What message would she get? Make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men? Use your body to advance God's kingdom? The end justifies the means. See, I don't think we want to make the mistake of making Esther a role model. What we see here is not prescription, what we ought to do. We see description of what happened. I don't want to tell my daughters the way to get a husband is to enter a beauty contest. I mean, it's in the Bible, but it's not a biblical model of how to find a husband. But here we see God is present even when he seems most absent. See, this happened to Daniel. Turn over to the book of Daniel. I just want to show you a couple verses in Daniel that give some clearer explanation of what's going on. We saw in Esther that Esther receives favor first from the chief eunuch and then everybody and then Xerxes. 
Well, in Daniel 1 verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So as Daniel is taken into captivity, God gives Daniel favor. It's much like God giving Joseph favor in the court of Pharaoh. God is present. And over in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, as Daniel is answering, as he's praising God, he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel understood that all of this comes from God who's in heaven. He even tears down kings and raises up kings. Over in chapter 4 of Daniel, verses 34 and 35, we see again, Nebuchadnezzar this time, the king of Babylon, after he had been restored and his reason returned to him, I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even Nebuchadnezzar realized Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God Most High, he's the one who does what he wants, and he's in charge. And he's ruling, and he rules over all affairs. Now, for us as Christians, this ought to bring us great comfort. Because what did Jesus say? The Father knows how many hairs you have on your head. He knows how to feed the sparrows. He knows how to clothe the flowers of the field that are here one day and gone another. And so we don't have to fear We don't have to worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. And the one who provides all those things, aren't you of much more value than any of that? That's what Jesus said to us. That God's sovereign providence, his governance of the world ought to bring us comfort. It ought to remove fear. It ought to remove worry from our lives. Not bring worry and fear into our lives. See, when I was young, I used to have that view of God's sovereignty. If he's in charge of everything and he sees everything, I ought to walk around in fear because he might zap me at any moment. It was a wrong view of him. Jesus says, if you understand God's in control and he's sovereign, this is in the Sermon on the Mount and later in Matthew 10, he says, you're of much more value than sparrows that he feeds, flowers that he clothes, He cares to know how many hairs you have on your head. For some of you, that's easier to know than others. But God knows it all, and he would care to know about the most most smallest, minute details of your life. And he's in control of them, and so you don't have to fear. Well, back to Esther. Esther chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus... After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, 
six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman, that is Esther, when she went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz. There's a name for you, Nathan. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast. For all his officials and servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with his royal generosity. Now, once again, we can't condemn this as like a beautiful romantic story. I mean, we can't just say this is a great love story. It's not really. This is the inhumanity of polygamy. Verses 12 to 14. After much preparation, a year of preparation, as she is technically married to him in his harem, only one night she gets with her husband. And if she doesn't please him, she will be condemned to virtual widowhood. She will never see him again, never spend time with him again. It's more like widowhood than marriage. And even after she's chosen... Verse 19 says, Xerxes gathers the virgins again to get more wives. Polygamy knows no bounds. Now the timeline is interesting because Esther is chosen in verse 18 to replace Vashti four years after Vashti is dismissed. This means it's after Xerxes had returned with his tail between his legs in failure at Thermopylae and the rest of the places in Greece. And so he comes back, he's licking his wounds, he's in the mully grubs. His counselors say, hey, why don't you go on and pick a wife to replace Vashti? And so he does, and in the providence of God, Esther is chosen to replace Vashti. Now this is going to become important later in the story. We're actually not going to get to it. We're going to get to the threat, but we're not going to get to how Esther is raised up for such a time as this. By God. But what we see on display here is God being present even when He seems most absent. Because in the eyes of the kingdom, Esther is chosen. She's now the queen. She's now one of the most powerful people in the empire. And the Jewish people would have seen this knowing she was a Jew and thought, this is incredible. We're prospering in Persia in this empire that Xerxes rules. And that's why I said at the beginning, sometimes we don't see God in the midst of all of the things that we happen that are good. At this point in time, everything's been good. Everything's been smooth. She found favor in the eyes of everybody, in the eyes of the king, and it says that he chose her to be queen. And evidently, in the next paragraph, Mordecai is raised to an official position. He gets a position in the government. 
And we all know that's a great job to have. The benefits, the retirement, out of this world. And so even Mordecai prospers under this. And yet God isn't mentioned at all. He seems most absent, but yet he's present. Verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, evidently Xerxes needed more wives, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. This doesn't mean Mordecai was a lazy bum. Him sitting at the gate means he got a position in the government. The elders, the officials sat at the city gate. So he's sitting at the city gate. Verse, 19, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Mordecai sitting at the gate at the right place, knowing the right language. Jewish Midrash tradition says that Mordecai was fluent in seven languages. And history tells us that gate he sat at had three languages written on it for inscriptions. And so... He was able to hear the right language, to understand and hear and foil their plot. He happens to be related to the queen who tells the king, and King Xerxes' life is saved. And what I want you to see is this discovery is by the providence of God, not by the wisdom of Mordecai. He was not out there doing investigations and detective work. He was sitting at the gate and happened to hear a conversation. And so God is most present even when he seems absent. And then it says that Xerxes did what was his habit of writing the name down. He writes Mordecai's name down according to Herodotus that whenever Xerxes saw one of his officers behaving with distinction, he would find out his name. His secretaries wrote it down together with his city and his parentage. And so this was a habit of Xerxes which is going to come back in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God to save the Jewish people later in the story. And so here, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and this is where we're going to end for today, is the beginning of this threat to the Jews. Chapter 3, verse 1, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, you would think it'd say Mordecai. Mordecai foiled a plot, and it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, not Mordecai. The audience hearing this would have said, what? Mordecai should have been promoted. Who's this Haman? Well, he's the villain of the plot. He's introduced for the first time. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him, including Mordecai. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servant who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Holy moly. That's a little bit of an overreaction. I'm going to kill all your people. Now, notice the contrast, right? Verse 22 of chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 3, the unrewarded service of Mordecai, and from our perspective, the undeserved promotion of Haman. Why do the wicked prosper? Because we're going to see Haman is wicked. Why do the wicked prosper is sort of another way of saying, where is God? Now, he's Haman the Agagites. Now, unless you are paying attention to your Old Testament histories and have been taught them from birth, you would have not known that, the, that Agag was the king of the Amalekites who in 1 Samuel 15 were to be totally wiped out and put to death. And Saul, King Saul of the Jewish people, refused to kill King Agag. And now it's coming back to bite them evidently because now a descendant, an Agagite, is going to try to wipe out the Jewish people. By the way, Mordecai was from the family of Saul, chapter 2, verse 5. And in Exodus seventeen sixteen, it says, The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, God expected his people to also be at war with the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind, they had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And so what we see in the book of Esther is actually God keeping his promise to wipe out the Amalekites. Because after Haman's plot is discovered to wipe out the Jews, after Esther speaks to the king and the Jewish people are allowed to defend themselves and they're delivered, then Haman is put to death and all his family and he has no more descendants. And so God's word always accomplishes what it says. Now, once again, uh, there's some humor here in the name Haman. Haman's name to the Jewish is very similar to the word Hamon, which means tumult or confusion. In other words, he's a loudmouth. <laughs> he's a loudmouth. And he is. In fact, everything about Haman in the story is hateful. According to Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And guess what? Haman does all those things in this book. And is the word Agagite a descendant of Agag? It's like a title. It's like the word Pharaoh. It's a title of the kings of Amalek. And evidently, Haman whether or not he's, there's some arguments in the commentaries whether he's genetically descended from the Amalekites. He's characterized in this story as the king of the Amalekites, as the enemy of the Jews. And he tries to wipe them out. 
And so Haman concludes that if Mordecai, a Jew, won't bow down, then neither will any of the other Jews. And the only solution is genocide. Wipe them all out. Now, ultimately, Satan is behind this plot. We're going to see this in two, uh, in four weeks when I finish up Esther, that ultimately Satan is behind this plot. You know that war that started in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent who will be at war? And God promised that one of the descendants of the woman would crush the serpent's head? Well, Satan's been trying to wipe out the Jewish people ever since that promise. He tried to do it throughout the book of Genesis. He tried to do it in various ways. And we don't have time to cover all those now, but here he's trying to do it again while they're in Babylonian captivity. Through the scheming of Haman, he tries to wipe out the Jewish people. And so once again, we could say, where is God? He seems remarkably absent while Esther and Mordecai are living their lives in success in the Medo-Persian kingdom, in one of the greatest kingdoms on the earth at that time. But now that a crisis arises and the Jewish people are going to be wiped out by Haman, who has the authority to do so, and the means to do so, where is God? What is amazing is God can take even a sinful action, and he can redeem it to bring about salvation. He did it in the life of Joseph, didn't he? Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were mad at him because he was the favorite. And so they sold him into slavery slavery in Egypt, which was the next country over. And they figured they'd never see him again. And yet God used it in his providence because he knew a famine was coming. And he sent Joseph down to Egypt at the right time to be there at the right place at Pharaoh's right hand so that when the Jewish people are about to be exterminated due to starvation and famine, Joseph was in the right place to deliver God's people. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for delivering his people. But ultimately, we see it at the cross, don't we? We see humanity's ultimate act of wickedness in betraying and crucifying the Son of God at the cross. The place where we could ask, where is God? As even Jesus said, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet we know it pleased the Lord to crush him. As a substitute for our sins, it pleased the Lord to make him the Savior of the world. That through his death and his burial and his resurrection and his exaltation, he is now able, the book of Hebrews says, to save to the uttermost those who come to faith through him. For he ever lives to intercede for them. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greater temple. He's the greater prophet, greater than Moses, it says in the book of Hebrews. He's better than everything. And if we can see the providential hand of God the Father working in the life of Jesus, surely we can see it working in the life of Esther in this story. For us who understand the workings of God Most High, it is clear as we read the book of Esther that God is not absent. He is very present. Every minute, every decision, every 
encounter that we see, we see God working behind the scenes to put Esther in the right place at the right time to save and protect his people. And he still does that today. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as you look forward to the rest of this day, this week, and whatever you have ahead of you, God is on his throne, and he is present, and he is with you. And the glorious news of the gospel is that he's not only with us, he is in us by the Spirit who is indwelling us. And if the Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, what will the inheritance be? And so we don't have to fear, we don't have to worry. It is the most important thing we could hear today, that God is on his throne and he is sovereign and he's ruling over our lives and he loves us and he cares about us. And he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he's lavish and gracious and bountiful in his gifts. And sometimes what he ordains to give us is suffering and sorrow. And he does it for our good and for his glory. In fact, we might say the entire book of Esther is a graphic illustration of what Nathan read in Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is their God? But our God, he's in heaven. And whatever pleases him, he does. That is our God. He's in the heaven. And whatever pleases him, he does. And dear beloved brothers and sisters, if you are in the midst of great suffering, great anxiety, it has pleased the Father to allow this for his glory and for your good. He loves you so much, he's allowed this into your life. And I don't know why. And we may not know why this side of eternity. But like Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if he takes my life, I will trust him. He is good and he does good. And we don't, when we don't understand what he's doing, we can trust his character, who he is. He's the sovereign, all good, all wise God. The giver of every good and perfect gift. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Esther. What a story. How we can see, even though your name is not mentioned, your presence is very visible to us. Father, forgive us for going through our days without even thinking about you. Plodding along day in and day out, doing our jobs, paying our bills, raising our kids, taking care of all of our responsibilities, and maybe we're very successful at it, Father, and yet we forget to remember you. How prone we are to forget. Father, give us, give us a mind to remember and think on and meditate on these things, Father, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that by your Spirit we would remember who you are and what you've done, and we know, according to the New Testament, that who you are and what you've done is revealed in the face of Christ. And so give us a bigger glimpse and glory of the glory and majesty and the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. May you be our vision. May you fill our gaze. When we're tempted, when we hear the, the mockers and the scoffers and those who have no faith say, where is your God? May we remember our God is in the heavens and whatever pleases him, he does. In Jesus' name. 
respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.